Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Women have achieved great things in the last decade, and this week we celebrated a great milestone the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gives women the right to vote. While we have come a long way as a society, we still have a long way to go to achieve full equality, not just gender equality, but racial equality as well. What can we as executives and leaders do to shrink the gap in C-suites of Fortune 500 companies, in boardrooms across the country, and in every other industry, small or large? My guests today are highly accomplished leaders who add numerous perspectives to the many struggles facing women today. I'm speaking with Barbara Franklin, President and CEO of Barbara Franklin Enterprises, the 29th U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Melissa Barrett, Vice President, Visa, and Co-Chair of the C-Suite Network's Diversity Council. Evelyn Sagunetti, Executive Director of Hope Fair Housing Center and the former Illinois Lieutenant Governor. Ladies, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. So I'm gonna ask the very first question. I'm gonna to go to the secretary, if I may, Barbara, and ask you the question. You were one of the first graduates from Harvard Business School um, and your life in public service began. Now, I won't say first graduates. Yeah, first graduate of Harvard Business School, not of Harvard itself, because that goes way back. So we want, yeah, but Harvard Business School and your life in public service began back in 1971 to recruit women in high level government jobs. So what was it like back then? And what did that picture look like? Oh, happy to talk about that. But first, I want to thank you and your team for doing this program uh, around the 19th Amendment and this really important anniversary. And, you know, this whole year was to be a celebration of, of the women, women's accomplishments and the slog it took to get this. A lot of other things have intervened with that celebration. So thank you for, for, uh, for putting all this together today. Oh, okay. Our pleasure. Yeah. What was the world like back then? Well, <laughs> it's a long one, but let me tell you just basically there was as a difference between now and then there's, there was not consensus in our society back then when I got out of Harvard business school or even into the seventies about what the role of women should be. And there were not a lot of professional roles for women that were very acceptable teachers, nurses, and secretaries, but you didn't see very many lawyers or executives or doctors. And so that was a, a, a rarity. And I was then asked to come to the Nixon White House because the president wanted to bring more women into the federal government, really at all levels, but at the senior levels. And I was to be the recruiter of those women. And then I was also to oversee the action plans that he, he didn't ask. He required of his cabinet secretaries. This is an important point. He insisted that they do action plans about advancing women in their departments. If he just asked, I'm not sure they would have done it, <laughs> but he required it and he required plans and I had to monitor how they were doing. So that was what it was like. A lot of stereotypes about women. I found when I traveled the country, oh goodness, they're not tough enough for the job. Women are emotional. Women are, you, you've heard it all. And a lot of that has gone away. But 
but not all of it. There's still some of that, and people didn't want to risk putting a woman in a job that she might not be able to do. Happily, all the women we appointed performed beautifully, and we doubled the numbers in the top jobs. That was the president's objective in, uh, in really about six months. Let me say, I think it'd be surprising that most people would find that Nixon was the one that initiated, let's double the number of women in government, let's double the number of women in, you know, in, in leadership positions. Did you find that surprising yourself? Well, you know, everybody, I was, I should back up here. I was sitting at Citibank at the time as a young assistant vice president. There were no full vice presidents in Citibank at the time. And I was, I was one of three AVPs who were women. And I was told by any number of friends, do not go to that White House because they will never do anything for women. Your career's coming along well, you're gonna mess it up. Well, I came and talked with everyone and realized that I thought it was serious. And I believed in the objective because I'd run into some of the same roadblocks in my own career at that point. And I decided that I was gonna do it. So it didn't really occur to me that it was odd that Nixon might do it. I just thought somebody should. And But that's a question that's been raised all along. You know, why did this president do it? He wasn't expected to do this. And I have to say, in fairness to him, he was a little ahead of his time. Why did he do it? Well, he had a mother who was, who was college ed- educated, which is unusual back then. He had a self-made wife, if you know anything about Pat Nixon. He had two daughters. And I think that was a piece of it. I also think the women's movement was out there making a lot of noise, burning bras, doing a lot of, doing a lot of things to get attention. And so there, there was starting to be a political piece to it. And it was the right thing to do. I just think it was all of that. And he, it, it, I, I, have, I have to tell you, this would not have happened at that time if a president of the United States had not been pushing it. But, but he did. And he monitored what was going on. He, he wanted to know what the progress was. And if it wasn't good enough, cabinet secretary would get a note saying that from the president. If it was good, he got a different note. I know that because I was writing those notes, just sending them upstairs, and he was sending them out. Yeah, you don't want to get those kind of notes from any president, no matter what. Let me go over to the former lieutenant governor. And I, I know I'm supposed to say former lieutenant governor, but, you know, I'm I'm old school. So I like to say once you're a lieutenant governor, once you're a secretary, always a secretary, always lieutenant governor. So, lieutenant governor, I want to ask you, you were the first Latino in history to serve in that capacity to become lieutenant governor. What did it mean to you to, 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 to take that on? Which is, it's almost still surprising in these modern times, quite frankly, all right? But what, what did it mean to you? In, and then what made you to, to enter public life? I'd, I'd like to know both of those. Well, thank you for having me today. I was very excited to become part of this amazing panel. And um, yes, you know, I did not know that I was the first Latina lieutenant governor um, in the whole nation to be sworn in. I was actually walking onto the stage for the swearing in ceremony and they announced it on the speaker. And you could imagine I was overcome with emotion, but I was like, 
don't cry over this makeup. You got to get sworn in. But um, it well, it came as a surprise to me. I didn't think that we'd wait uh, so long to have the first Latina lieutenant governor in the entire nation. Um, what that felt to me was an incredible amount of pressure uh, to to do what was right. Or as Dr. Martin Luther King always said, it is always the right time to do the right thing. So to me, doing the right thing was to diversify my staff uh, because, you know, I, I was the first make sure that uh, the people saw themselves in my office because of the diversity in my office. And a lot of things that I did um, needed to resemble, uh, you know, the, the population that I represented. So uh, that's what it meant like, it, that's what it was like for me. And now that I've transitioned into another area, being the executive director of the Hope Fair Housing Clinic here in Wheaton, Illinois, the, state, the same holds true. Uh, the philosophies of equity and fairness in housing and in everything that I do. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, let me go to Melissa. Melissa, you talked about mentoring and creating opportunities for the next generation of leaders. How can we get more leaders to continue this trend? How can we get other people to, to help mentor and bring forth that? As I mentioned, you know, I sometimes I'll say this in the C-suite, you know, and I'll ask an executive, who was your sponsor? You know, and I don't like using that word as much anymore because people are teaching me the word ally. And it's only been the last couple of months I've been learning. the. And Melissa, you might have been the person that actually taught me that word was. But to use the word ally rather than sponsor, because sponsor kind of puts somebody over someone and we're all equal. So if we're all equal, let's use good, better, better terminology. And uh, but I used to use that word because even when I was in the C-suite, I always had a sponsor. I mean, I had the CEO watching my back because it's a very political animal in those public fortune 100 companies are a lot of a lot of knives that come out during those those battles and fights so how can we get more mentors or allies and and talk about a little bit about that yeah well thanks so much for having me i think this is a tremendous discussion that is certainly always due not overdue but always overdue but uh i'm so glad to be engaging in this type of dialogue it has, uh, it, you know, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Visa, I'm speaking on behalf of Melissa today, but uh, I just want to make sure that when we're talking about mentorship, and I'm glad you brought up, Jeff, the, uh, the you know, some of the differences between language in terms of sponsorship, ally, you can be a sponsor and an ally, um, certainly. Sponsorship really identifies uh, you know, a place where you are recognizing and speaking for people who are not sitting at the table. Um, and so, you know, being a sponsor mm -hmm. is phenomenal and being able to have sponsors interact with sponsors um, and really just provide the amount of mentorship when it comes to, you know, delivering information from those tables that other people don't sit at is, is really important. So I think the first thing that people need to think about when you're talking about how do we make sure that we have more mentors um, is just about intention uh, and your own intentions to make sure that you have a diverse workplace, um, identifying and acknowledging some of the challenges with that. Because I would venture to guess in most cases, you may have people that already sit within your company 
that are doing great work and you want to retain them, coach them, mentor them and develop them because they're already there. It's often challenging to go outside and find out how you spread your wings to pull in other people from other channels. Um, and so, and, and that's certainly um, another area of, of being able to spread your wings and, and select from and recruit from other places. But I think when we're talking about mentorship and coaching, a lot of times we have to come back to a few components that have to do with relationship. Um, what, who do you have a relationship with? Be okay with being uncomfortable in a conversation. Your mentor is not always somebody that you know. Um, you may just decide to, you know, create that relationship and be okay with the fact that, you know, the first few sessions, the first few, you know, discussions that you have may be a little bit uncomfortable. It's okay on both sides, right? Like, you may not know what to ask. They may not know how to answer. Um, but building that relationship actually creates the connection that you need um, in order to create the trust uh, that will then serve you as you think about understanding their capabilities, their talents, and where they may be better placed uh, as they move up with the company. I like the word intentions. Uh, you know, back when I was a C-level executive at a Fortune 100 company, as a CMO, 75% um, of the people that reported to me were women or people of color. And I actually had the head of uh, diversity come to me and tell me that I was in trouble. And I was in trouble because I was over-indexing and I had to correct it and go hire more white middle-aged men. And I said, you're freaking nuts. There's no way I'm going to do that. And she actually told me I wasn't going to get my bonus as a result of it. Now, what you know in a Fortune 100 company at that time was a big bonus, a big check. And I said, look, if you don't give me my bonus for doing a better job than everybody else in this company, uh, when you do this to me, I'm going to the Wall Street Journal and I'm going to show them what we're doing, that this is ridiculous. So you better fix this because I'm not hiring any more white middle-aged men, not to mention it at Eastman Kodak at the time. Who were we serving? We were serving the chief memory officer, which was women. So, you know, and then of all color, right? So anyway, my question is, so this came from Greg, who is uh, one of our one of our hosts of C-Suite Insights and uh, heads our TV and radio here at C-Suite Radio, uh, C-Suite uh, Network. He said and asked, what have each of you done in order to bring, you know, to bring people of influence to, 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 to be able to be that advocate. I, I'd be, I'm curious to know what you're doing and how you do it, because it would, it would be great examples for other women that are watching. How about, Evelyn, how about you? Can I ask you first? Well, it's one of my favorite pieces that I continually do. You have to be a mentor. So technically, all three of us have made it, right? And a lot of times what we see happen uh, with women is that once we've made it, uh, we rest in our laurels. We work hard in our positions, but you need to reach back to the woman uh, that you could mentor and take them with you 
And you could only do that by creating a pipeline. And so throughout the years, what I've done is connect with grade schools, with junior high schools, high schools, college students, empower them, be there, be that mentor, become a part of an organization, uh, put your money where your mouth is, donate to the organization so that they could put it behind these women and be with these women every step of the way. I've done it in the in a partisan way. I've done it in the women's sector, sector and also in the Latino sector. But um, really what we need to do is once we've made it, we need to empower those behind us so that we could bring them with us, elevate them, and we could have that pipeline we so very much need. So, Madam Sec- How about you, Madam Secretary? Absolutely. I agree with all that has been said here. We do need the pipeline. And in my case, uh, particularly given my earlier history of being one of, one of 12 women in a class of 680 at Harvard Business School, you, 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 you get a different perspective on what it's like to be different or the only one. So everywhere I have been, and the White House was, was one place, of course, but, but even going forward, everywhere I have been, whether that's been in government or in the private sector, I make, make a a whole big deal out of advocating for women and bringing them in. And at Commerce, actually, (laughs) there appeared one day in the Washington Post, a little blurb, and I remember this is 25 years ago, that said the Secretary of Commerce was hiring too many women. (laughs) I mean, I loved it, but but some of the men were were getting a little upset about that. So I think mentoring is important. I also think um, on boards of directors, If we are on boards of directors, here is a place where you really have a perch to begin to look over what's going on in the company. And more boards are doing that, more comp committees are doing that to see what's going on down the line with respect to bringing women up. Where they get stuck in corporate America, as I'm sure you know, is in the middle. Yeah. Forces that converge and a lot of men get competitive or whatever is is going on. So... There is a real need for a continuous looking at that. And that means we should go back around and have more women on boards of directors so that you can have that push from the top as from the CEO too, but in case the CEO doesn't quite have religion on, on this. The other thing I want to say, in addition to mentors, and I think we all have to do mentoring of other women from wherever we sit. I also think women need what I call allies. I don't know what, what the rest of you would call it, but you need to know who your friends are. If you're trying to get something done organizationally or anywhere, you need to know who's going to be of, of your mindset that you can go to and, and compare notes or get support. And you need to know who's going to be neutral. And you can maybe persuade people like that. If there are people who are going to be totally against you, I, I tend to forget about those people and not spend any time. But work on the ones where you, you can get, you've got to be able to count some days, uh, get, get some results. So I, need, I think women need both things. I think we need mentors, and we each have a responsibility to do that. But I also think we need allies. Know who our friends are. Awesome. Melissa, how about you? What do you, how have you helped people? How have you reached down and, and brought somebody back up? Yeah, I think, um, and I agree with everything that everyone has said thus far. I think as an Afro-Latina person of color specifically, 
I actually try to make sure that I am reaching out to other folks that are coming up in the pipeline, whether they're new, um, maybe the new career, they're just beginning. Um, I, I really try to make time for those coffee chats. I think they become really important. They were important to me as I grew my career. And I want to make sure that I'm there to answer questions, help people understand how to navigate their own career, whether they're at uh, the same company or, uh, you know, they have aspirations to move in a different direction. Um, so I think that becomes really important to just make time on your schedule, be intentional about how much time you want to spend. Um, because I think specifically in the area of people of color, there's always lots of opportunities for people to want information. And a lot of times at the top, there's not a lot of people up there um, to reach back. Um, so it becomes really uh, a focus to make sure that you are giving back, as, as Evelyn mentioned. Um, and I think that the, you know, when we think about mentorship and sponsorship and, you know, those are all things where people don't always know when you get into that middle area how to segment. And our middle managers play, you know, those frontline managers play a significant role in helping mentor people that are coming up in their careers. Um, and so I think as, as you know, C-level executives look to figure out how to diversify the population, it's really about making sure that you have knowledge about how your organization works, what some of those unconscious biases are, you know, as you are trying to expand that pipeline. Let me note that that was actually a question that came from Greg Williams, one of our thought council member. And of course, he's known as the master, uh, the master negotiator. So uh, I stand corrected on where that came. Um, and we got to be good in media. We have to be as good as possible to be to show that we can be trusted. So that's great. Thank you for pointing that out to the team. And then, um, you know, I, that, all of your comments remind me of a famous saying that Remember that when you get to the top to send the elevator elevator back down for everybody else. And I think that's a great quote, a great thing for us to remember. C-Suite Radio. You know, back in May, we found out the number of female CEOs at Fortune 500 companies hit an all-time record, okay, of 37. 37. And to me, that's really pathetic if you think about it. Um, and, and so why, you know, not, and not to slight the people who are in those positions today in any way, shape or form, they're all very qualified. There's no doubt about that. Well, maybe a few aren't according to their stock prices, but why aren't we further along? I mean, what, what do we have to do to speed up this process? Uh, can we afford to keep waiting for people to catch on? What do we have to do? Who wants to take that first? Well, I'll start. Oh, Barbara. Yeah, we can all bounce around on this. Well, I mean, <laughs> women have to be hired first, and I think they are being hired, and and then they have to be able to move up. And as I think you've experienced, and I have seen in spades, when they get to the middle, they get blocked. But if they get through the middle and get up here to the top, that's when we really have to be guarding uh, them. I feel. And I've seen this too many times of women who've gotten right up there. And then 
I don't know, the forces around them begin to cave in and say, well, maybe she doesn't want to be the CEO or maybe she's really not tough enough or something. So if you don't have an enlightened CEO about this kind of stuff, about bringing people up, then here again, I'm coming back to the board of directors and I've served on a bunch of them. You really need a critical mass of women on the board and that's at least three, but I'd like to see half. And then you can really begin to guard those women who get up, up there at the top. And the other thing that, you know, a lot of the guys get coaches, coached about this and that. And this mm -hmm. is more than mentoring. This is coaching, yep. executive coaching. I think women who get there really need that. And here is where, if management isn't going to do it, the board of directors can, uh, can force it. And there are a couple of things that I would say. First of all, you've got to know the business. You've got to know what you're doing. And you've got to think of yourself as a leader if you're, if you're up there. But one of the things that gets women into trouble is voices. And there's some very screechy women's voices out there. Well, I think you know, one of the things you do is you, you get voice lessons. I've done it a couple of times in my career. And I wish I had thought to do it earlier. And what it does is give you confidence. And now I know I could talk over anybody in any room. Well, I don't do it, but I know I could. And that helps me. So that's thing number one. Number two is to be able to make points crisply in meetings. Somehow women sometimes say, well, wouldn't it be a good idea to consider this when you might want to say, this would be a good idea. Think about it. In other words, it's a stylistic thing. Here again, I think coaching uh, can really help. And I personally have coached some women who were up there, who were almost ready to go. And one of them is about there right now. So, you know, it can really help. So I, that, that was when I was a board member. I was doing and, that. And, be, and don't be afraid uh, for those that are listening that, that if you, if your board isn't paying for that, your company's not paying for it, make an investment in yourself because yeah. it does pay off. That coaching does. Evelyn, Lieutenant Governor, what were you going to say? If I could charm in, uh, Secretary, because um, that's really funny about voice coaching. When I taught law at the John Marshall Law School, I noticed that my uh, female students would say, uh, first day of class, tell me who you are, who you represent, and what you want. And I noticed that more times than none, the female students would get up and say, my name is Evelyn Sanguinetti, um, and I represent the defendant. And uh, what I need is for you to grant my motion to dismiss and no eye contact. And then, and I called it, I labeled it, excuse me for living speech and or up speak as many uh, call it. And for whatever reason, coming from my female students, always ended up in a question. But at the end of that class, I had them affirmatively making that eye contact, affirmatively knowing what they wanted. And um, that is a big deal. And I don't know why that is. So that's a great point to bring up. Um, other, other things to speed up the process is stop waiting to be asked. Statistically, <laughs> statistically, as women, we need to be asked a plethora of times compared to our male counterparts. Why? Well, they say many reasons. You know, our family's reputation is at stake. It's too invasive. We have children to raise. We have our careers. There's too much going on. But more times than none, we need to be asked more often than males to jump, run for office, or try to take a lead 
leadership role. So if you want to speed up the process, then stop waiting to be asked and pull that trigger. Um, also, too, um, you know, I've noticed that for our male counterparts, when they're applying for positions, when they jump for something different, a transition in careers, you know, they may not check out all the boxes of what a job requires. Um, and I always tell women that I try to mentor, you know, you don't have to check all the boxes either. A lot of the things that you've learned in life, a lot of the things are are as I could say, uh, transferable skills. So I have a background in politics and I also have a background in teaching and practicing law, but I did not have a background in running a wonderful organization like a fair housing center. Now, as women, a lot of times we say, we don't check that box. So do we take the plunge? And I would submit to all women today, you should, because a lot of what we learn is transferable to something else. And our male counterparts do do it. We need to do it yeah. wrong. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Somehow we don't want to take the risk sometimes. And the men will. And I think women need to, to be able to do that, to step forward and to say, okay, maybe I haven't done it all, but I've done enough that I right. can handle this. Exactly. I like it. And I just want to add a couple of quick things here. And I totally agree. I think one of the things that you're talking about, though, is a level of confidence. Um, and I think sometimes we, especially as women, we don't walk in with that level of confidence because we're looking for some sort of validation in some cases. Um, and I think the confidence is really important, whether you feel it or not, fake it till you make it. Um, because it makes a difference in how people view you and the information that you're providing. The other thing I just want to mention is we talk about networks. Obviously, this is a C-suite network. There are um, lots of networks. Um, and I, I just want to emphasize how significant networks can be when it comes to your own growth. Um, Jeffrey talked about, you know, if, if, if the company is not paying for your coaching, invest in yourself, pay for it. That's not cheap, but it's a worthwhile investment, education, coaching. Those are things that you just can't get to in order for you to make it to the next level. So those uh, are things I would just underscore. Uh, let me give you a, a hint with that for some women who are saying, look, I can't afford this. Well, then trade something out, trade it out. Say, hey, look, I'm an executive in a company. Who do you need to get introduced to, coach? I'll introduce you to 10 of my, my closest allies, friends, and people who might hire you. And then in, in return, you give me this. And I would have never have caught the thing about the voice. Now I can just imagine, Barbara, there's people going, hi, I'm Nancy from, from here on out. You know, so it's going to be well done. Well done. Let me ask you about. Let me, but, but by the way, I got to tell you as a man, you know, look, I'm, I'm as big as a Mack truck and I'm as loud as a Mack truck and I drive like a Mack truck and I have to be told to calm it down. So when I'm in front of, uh, of other groups too. So, so it go, it goes both ways a little bit, but uh, without a question, we've been, we've been controlling the card game for a long time and who gets to sit at the table. So it's good to see it. Hey, I want to talk about diversity. It's not just about women too. It's also about, uh, about people of color. It's about how we transform those that are currently underrepresented. And it's, it's great to see the mix of diversity that we have here. So what needs to happen to make sure that companies re represent the communities that we serve? 
How do we do that? Yeah, I think uh, so. I'll chime in uh, if you don't mind. Um, I think I think one of the things is when we think about the communities that we serve, I think sometimes we think very specifically about our geographic location um, and our geography um, certainly can serve the communities that we're in. But there are so many things happening digitally um, that, and certainly at this point in time, you have a lot of people, remote workers, um, that can work from anywhere. So I think one of the things that uh, you want to make sure that you're not doing is even when you're thinking about where you're pulling your candidates from, uh, in terms of where you advertise, how you outreach, whether you're looking at, um, you know, specific colleges, expand your thought process. Um, we now have a lot of dialogue going on about historically black colleges and universities that, um, you know, ha we haven't seen at this level before. Um, and so I think there's lots of uh, areas that when you think about recruiting, selection, um, all of those things, you have to expand your pipeline so that you're actually pulling in but also make sure, you know, everybody has a deadline for when they want a position to start. Sometimes it's gonna take a little longer because you are expanding those opportunities to pull in others into the pipeline. And you have to, you know, kind of give yourself uh, some additional time for that. So Governor, how about you? You got, a, got any advice there on the community side? Well, I, I agree that first of all, it starts at home. And so you take a look at your staff, kind of like I did when I was lieutenant governor, and make sure that your staff looks like the public that it serves. And I'm trying to do that here as executive director of the Fair Housing Center. But luckily, um, we're very diversified here. But you need to be intentional from within your own staff. Don't tell other businesses how to do it if you haven't done it at home. And you also need to be intentional on how you shop. Actually, here in um, Illinois, uh, we have an organization called CMSDC, Chicago Minority Supplier Development Council. So if you believe that you need to help minorities more, if you believe that you have to diversify more, then certainly if you're going to have projects done at home or in your business place, shops from those pockets. You know, stop saying it, put your money where it's at. And I would say that that's where to make it, where you have to make it happen fast. Madam Secretary, I want to ask you one question and I got to go political. I have to go political. I know you well enough and, and, I, and I love my conversations I've had with you. I think if we weren't separated by a party, we would be brothers and sisters. But nonetheless, we're Americans and that's okay. And I respect you greatly. Uh, but, you know, we got a presidential campaign. Who's going to fare better for, for women? Uh, is it going to be Biden ticket or is it going to be the Trump ticket? Who, who, where, where are we going to see greater advances for women from which side? Well, I'm not sure I'm going to go there, Jeffrey. Uh, except That's okay. You, you can skip that one. <laughs> to say this. Well, if you had Trump sitting in front of you, if you had Biden sitting in front of you, which you, which I know you might very well have, what would you tell them they need to do? I think they need to really take women and the concerns of women seriously. And I think where the failings uh, have been and will be, that is now going to show up in the ballot box. I think it did in 2018. 
And I think there's going to be more of that in the mix this time. Now, I'm not going to predict politically who's going to go where, except I am going to say this about my party. My Republican Party has a gender gap, and we have to fix it. Yep. And I'm going to leave it right there. Fair enough. We'll keep keep as much of the politics out of it as we can. C-Suite Radio. Trish, I want to turn it over because I know we're going to have some great, great questions from uh, our from some of our uh, attendees that are here. So I'll turn it over to you and take some of those questions. We do have some great questions. And I don't know if you've been listening to me over the last five months with how many great, amazing events we've hosted. My voice has gotten deeper and deeper just from the usage. <laughs> you know, I had, to, I had to focus on that when I was younger. And now I'm so deep, it sounds like I've been spoken for 20 years. Um, so I'm going to go to Kathleen Caldwell first, our, our sponsor and our leader of the C-Suite Network Women's Leadership Council. She says, you know, we've evolved so much. What are we doing? What are those practical things you think we're doing that actually hold us back from our potential? And therefore, what are the practical steps we can take to move ourselves forward as women? So, um, I guess I'll, I can start, um, So from my perspective, what are the things that we can do? I mean, some of them are uh, simple, you know, educate yourself. Um, We've talked a lot about education. Everybody's perspective um, tends to be where where it is and where they have been. Um, Oftentimes it takes your own intention to go outside of your own boundaries and really understand other people's perspectives. Um, So I would say that being uh, the first thing Um, to just make sure that you have a level of education, that you have an open mind to understand other people's uh, experiences. Um, Because I think, you know, empathy goes a long way when you're just trying to understand um, how something has occurred or the life of somebody. Everybody has a story. Um, And so I think the, you know, having some insight into those stories gives you perspective as you're managing your own business. I I would add something here. I think, I think we ought to think of ourselves as leaders and start with that in your head and, and, and walk into wherever you're going with, with some confidence that I can do this. I'm prepared and I'm a leader. It does make a difference where one's head is. And if you need help, stand in front of a mirror and say it to yourself. I am a leader. I am a leader. I am prepared. I, mean, I really do think that sounds maybe a little silly, but I do think those kinds of things really work. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Evelyn. This is this is going to be um, an interesting one, but it's something that I noticed uh, when I would go door to door. So my recommendation for women would be um, to dispel your own unintentional bias. You know, there's a saying among us that sisters don't let sisters get ahead. And I'll give you an example. When I was running for the Wheaton City Council, I was going door to door. And I came across a neighbor a few blocks down, knocked on her door. She came to the door. I told her my name and that I was running for the Wheaton City Council and that I'd love to go in and talk with her about, you know, what I thought about government, my philosophy of government. And she asked me what I did. I said, what I do. 
And then she goes, yeah. I said, well, I'm your neighbor. I have three kids. I'm a member of the PTA. No, but what do you do? I said, oh, my job. Well, I'm a practicing attorney. I'm an adjunct professor of law, a mom, uh, happily married, your neighbor. And let me tell you about my philosophy of government. And she told me, sounds like you're too busy. I bet you that would have never happened to a male counterpart that was going door to door running for office. So my suggestion to woman is look deep within because we all have unintentional biases and the way we treat our sisters may be one of those. So let's dispel that. Support each other, in other words. Exactly Ooh. right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, I think sometimes we forget about those unconscious biases because they are learned. Um, you're not born with them. Uh, and so just being able to recognize and acknowledge, maybe I shouldn't have said that, or why am I thinking that way, um, makes a huge difference when, you know, you're putting your intentions in order. So that leads to a couple of other really interesting questions. But I, I think practically speaking, we're saying that we're seeing that uh, play out right now with what are you as an employer or an executive with re direct reports saying to your staff, are you saying to the women, oh, what are you doing to look after your children? Let us help you. Well, that creates a systemic bias. So it can be done out of generosity even as well. You know, it's it, that whole, the, the envelope of systemic bias is a fascinating one. And Tina Greenbaum is one of our thought council leaders. Um, she and Trisha Turns had a couple questions that are kind of tied into this in terms of what are the, the um, uh, what are women naturally more conscious about in terms of equality and inclusion? Are we? Um, and and how do we raise the level of consciousness? Um, how do we address the the feminine and masculine energies and how we present ourselves and how how those things are judged publicly by both men and women that we're working with? There's something I'd like to throw in here, if I could. Um, back in the early days when I was starting out and was working. Uh, there were a lot of baldly discriminatory things said or done. I mean, I've been chased around a few tables in my day, but the, the, the point is there was no recourse. There was nothing you could do about that. If it was your boss that was chasing you, you couldn't tell him to stop it and have it matter. Well, now that's changed, and the Me Too movement has changed it. So... Um, where was I going with, with, this, uh, <laughs> with this point? Uh, that's, that's a very different thing. But now the, the, the roadblocks are in a different way. And this is where we're getting to unconscious bias in the heads of men. Sometimes things are not said, but they're still in somebody's head. That's harder to deal with if you're a woman dealing with a man who's got something in his head that says to him, she's really not up to this or whatever, or causes him even to say something that you just said, that you, he's, my dear, <laughs> shouldn't you take care of your family first? They, these are still hurdles. We still have to change thought processes and that's, that's hard to do. But the first thing to do is to be aware of this, of the more subtle barriers that I feel we have to, uh, to, to outgrow uncover. The, the other thing, I had a strange experience a couple years ago where a, a, a club I belonged to wanted to bring in more women. And the, the, the chairman of the board had a really good idea and he'd done it in the 
with the government. I knew him well. So I, I got engaged in that effort. There were a lot of men in this group. Do you know where the resistance came from? Not from the old, old guys. It was from the younger guys. And I couldn't understand it. I thought we'd, we'd busted through that. But we apparently haven't. And the only explanation I could ever get from anybody was that the younger men were tired of competing with women in school and maybe being outdone by the women and then in some job situations. And so there's, there's some, I'm calling it today invisible resistance to women moving up. And, and that's the part, again, is in somebody's head that is very hard to see as a difference from when I was being chased around the table. <laughs> uh, who else wants to jump in on that one? <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, I think, I think that's well said. I mean, um, certainly, I think some of the challenges, uh, traditionally, I think there's a lot that has fallen on women to take on, uh, you know, raising of the kids and, you know, all of those things. And I think we have a lot of men that really have stepped up and said, hey, you know, I want to be just as involved. Um, and I think sometimes when we think about the mindset um, as we move forward, you know, it, it is risky when you are, you know, working with any manager, uh, whether they are supportive or not. And I think a lot of times, you know, we may be less comfortable uh, if our manager is not supportive or in voicing our disagreement um, or, you know, for fear of losing our position or our job. But I think at some point that level of confidence that you have, that you are the leader, will serve you wherever you go. Um, and so I think a lot of times that fear that you end up with, you have to transcend that fear so that you're not you're not you know, just focused on a job, a position, a board seat, but that you are serving your community in a way that provides the impact and amplification that you want to leave um, for your legacy. Yeah. Um, Kimberly Roosh uh, had a great question, and, and she's one of our thought council leaders in C-Suite Network as well. And she said, you know, how do we overcome the male fear factor? And I think that ties into exactly you know, what you're talking about, you know, uh, the feeling of being threatened uh, by the advancement of women. And, and Evelyn, I mean, there are women who are threatened as well. You know, how do we overcome that? How do we drive past that? What do we what do we do to make that kind of conscious or unconscious bias dissipate more quickly than two hundred and eight years. Right. And we've seen it happen over time. I remember as a, as a young attorney, when I was going to the courtroom, this is where I get to show you my age and that I'm about to turn 50. But I was oftentimes not confused with being um, an attorney. Uh, they would ask me whether I was the interpreter, I guess because I look Latina, or whether I was the court reporter. At no point in time did the people checking me in think um, that I would be um, an assistant attorney general at the time. Um, I don't think that's a problem anymore. Uh, why? Because in time, we resist and uh, we stop people. Uh, we let them know boldly exactly where we stand. Uh, we need to continue doing that. But I think right now, uh, what we're facing with COVID, and we're seeing uh, the curtains go back upon the differences uh, that are glaring at us between 
between the differences in our black and brown uh, communities as it pertains to education, um, access uh, to opportunity and uh, world-class healthcare. And a lot of these differences in treatment between our protected classes, I think we are faced with the unique opportunity right now to talk about gender relations, uh, the unique opportunity right now to talk about race relations, uh, because these are things that we've naturally been conscious about. But now with COVID-19 and what we're facing with this pandemic, I think it should be easier for us to engage in conversations about those more difficult subjects, mm -hmm. the subjects of differences between the treatment of men and women in the workplace and race relationships. And I guess we just have to find ways and places to bring that up. Mm -hmm. and engage in discussion, and uh, maybe you could do it right here, Jeffrey. Right now. <laughs> well, and quite frankly, I think it does take, that's when, when Jeffrey talks about allies, that's what we're talking about. We need allies to have those conversations, and we need them to be okay with being uncomfortable having those conversations. I am experiencing something in my particular position I'm not comfortable with and, you know, express it. I think, you know, the acknowledgement is a huge way for people to understand what experiences are occurring. C-Suite Radio. You know, this conversation uh, leads to a question from one of our executive leaders, Cassandra Carter, who is an emerging business owner and founder and leader. And um, and and she's speaking to the pressures, you know, stepping in as the first. And another woman that I, I, I never knew, you know, I was born right about the time she was just doing her thing. Um, but Shirley Chisholm, oh my goodness, you know, and she has, you know, famously spoke about being a woman and being a black woman and which one was more challenging and where she saw the greatest challenges posed to her. Um, and so, you know, Cassandra's question specifically about, you know, the pressures of being the first, you know, the first Latino to do this, the first black woman to do this, you know, what are those pressures? How do you, how do you deal with that? And, and the fact of the matter is you're the fret, you're the first so publicly, right. Uh, in politics, in business. Um, but we also have all of those various levels in our personal lives too, right. Where we're all experiencing first of something. So I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what's the piece of advice you give about being that first and how you do that? And, and I know there was another great question and I'll look for who it was from, but about, you know, how do you, oh, Meg Glesner, you know, how do you make that first impact matter? You know, how do you step into that being first? Well, I can start perhaps, um, since I'm older than all of you probably put together <laughs> and have been the first woman in a lot of uh, places over, over uh, the last uh, 55, 60 years. There is pressure, there's no question. You do not want to fail if you're the first woman because it will make it harder for everybody who's trying to follow you. So I think that does a couple of things. That makes you try harder, be better, be better prepared, be smarter, be wiser, be everything. And it also makes you a little bit cautious about not doing anything that would <laughs> blow up uh, where you're trying to go or insult someone whom you really need in the future or something. I think it does all of that. But once you can 
get get through the <laughs> through the initial first and you're into wherever it is and you're respected admired and you have influence then a lot of that goes away but there is an initial period where you have to prove yourself there is no question about that now i i saw this particularly in boards of directors where i was the only woman on most of the board and i was on a large cap seven of them, company boards before I became Commerce Secretary. Um, I was, in some of those, uh, I, well, in most of them, I was the only woman for most of the 80s. And some of the men on the boards were old enough to be my father. And that was, that was a whole other kettle of whatever. Are they ever going to be accepting of this kid, sort of? So I really had to prove it. And but one, you can do it, and I think everyone who's been a first knows that it can be done, and I think we have to pass that knowledge and that understanding to others who are firsts, and you know, you can do it. And I, I admire, for example, Sandra Day O'Connor quite a lot as the first woman on the Supreme Court. That was not an easy uh, chore at that time, and she did it beautifully, and now, of course, we have several women. I'd like to see another couple more perhaps on the court but uh, but I, anyway there there is pressure that comes with being a first but somebody has to do it <laughs> and you don't think of yourself as a pioneer you're just doing what needs to be done and trying to do it well so that others can follow and the, and the barrier that you busted through will stay down if I may, um, so I think of, of two things uh, on this point. Um, with, uh, I, you know, I told you that in Illinois, we have two firsts. Juliana Stratton, our sitting lieutenant governor here in mm. Illinois, is the first African-American to hold that role. And of course, I'm the first Latina in the entire country to hold that role. But Juliana Stratton oftentimes says, how could they want to be you if they can't see you? And I thought that that was a very, very good point on her part. Uh, on my first year in office, I made sure to get through all 102 counties um, and to get into those grade schools, get into those high schools, get before those women's groups, uh, because they cannot be you if they can't see you. And um, number two, you need to show people your vulnerabilities. You need to share your personal story with people so that they will not be afraid to become leaders, so that they will not be afraid to run for office. So as far as I'm concerned, the first thing I like to share uh, with adolescents, for instance, I let them know that I come from a family of immigrants and refugees and that Spanish was my first language and so I failed the first grade. I let them know about the struggle of food uncertainty and housing. A lot of people don't want to talk about that. I didn't want to talk about it. As a matter of fact, I was embarrassed before I, I got into politics to even share that. But I believe that in sharing your vulnerabilities, um, I, I think that more women will say, you know, she's imperfect, just like me. And even still, she fought hard to achieve this role. And I think that by showing others and sharing your personal story, that will get more women in the ring to do what we're doing. Not being afraid, not being afraid to take that step. And that's a matter of, of, of risk. I think we as women need to understand where we're taking a prudent risk and that it's okay. I, it, sometimes I think women don't want to take a risk. And, and you have to, you're gonna keep moving. So anyway, I agree with what you're saying and I would just add, show your 
show yourself, but be willing to step forward and take a risk if you're going to be first. I love what we were talking about community and Melissa, I'm sure you're probably going to go there now, but uh, do you want to answer that quickly? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a couple things that I just wanted to mention in terms of, um, you know, the, I mean, I think first of all, when we think about our own leadership, we, ha we have to be phenomenal. We always have to be better. Um, and you know, our bar is higher. So I think, you go into it with that mindset, no matter where you start. Um, but I think the other thing is, you know, you're not competing with a man or up against someone. You, you're always competing with yourself on how, how well you can actually do the position. So rely on very specific metrics um, in terms of what your goals are, where you want to be, create some stretch goals. Um, and then as you're really, you know, focused on the value of what you're bringing to the table, don't be afraid to highlight those. I think a lot of times, you know, we're, you know, the man might be out there kind of highlighting all of the benefits and value that he's bringing to the company or, you know, um, or to the, the, the work that is being done. But I do think, you know, to Evelyn's point, like get out there, highlight it, you know, write a, write an op-ed or, you know, um, you know, contribute to different, you know, articles and papers, get yourself kind of out there. Um, and I think sometimes that's a little bit scary. Um, but you know, when you showcase some level of vulnerability, you're, you just show that you're a real person and you know, it's okay. I, I love that. And in this community, you have to, or else it's like, you know, you're not being real in C-suite network. That'll be challenged. Um, okay. So I have, I am, I'm, I'm, Allison is going to be yelling at me, but I have one more question that I really want to make sure I ask. And then, and then we'll, we'll open up and, and we would love to have you stay. You're more than welcome to. I'm so grateful. I know all of us are for your time this afternoon. This conversation has been incredible. There's so many great conversations that Still need to be had. But Elisa Kamahort Page inspired me for this question. You can see in the chat, we have incredible men in the C-suite network. And Elisa's question really focuses on if we're mentoring men, and we all have, all of us who are executive women or, you know, uh, reached higher levels in uh, politics and so on, we've all mentored men as well. What are the what are the keys in terms of how we mentor the men that we're mentoring, how we coach, how we support for them to see maybe some of the things that they may not see otherwise or may not see from other mentors that they have? And yep, Evelyn, do you mind jumping in? Well, I'm just going to talk about mentoring men from the household because that's where it starts. And um my husband was the one when I was uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. He was the one um, that convinced me uh, to run for office. Uh, I met him in law school as a student, and we have two young men um, as our sons. And the way you mentor men starts at home. And I think it's very important for them to see uh, women uh, that are uh, leaving the home uh, to go to work, uh, to have uh, top roles in the workplace and to have leadership roles in government. And I think that that's where we start mentoring men is at home and teaching that respect um, so that we could 
achieve that parity uh, that we started talking about at the beginning of the segment. Yeah, I think the other thing is, you know, when we talk about, and, and that's a great point in terms of, you know, it starts at home, because I think, you know, a lot of times you get to somebody earlier in their career and you wonder where their home training was, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, do you not have any respect for the people that are that you work with? Um, and so I think from from a mentorship, I've had, you know, certainly great sponsors and mentors that are men. I have mentored men. Um, I think some of the things that are maybe different are in terms of the networks um, that they may, uh, you know, connect with or participate in. Um, but I think the one of the obvious things that that we bring is, you know, people in our own network that maybe they wouldn't be introduced to or connect with. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference, especially in understanding uh, where they want to go and how those people can influence where they want to go. So being able to open my network, um, you know, is important. I would add um, a note about diversity here. If, if we're mentoring men who are in executive roles and who want to be in more executive roles, and the workforce is becoming more diverse, and we like it, we're pushing for it, uh, managing diversity is not so simple. One has to, and a, a man in particular who may have an unconscious bias he doesn't know about, that didn't get corrected at home, <laughs> um, needs to manage diversity. And that takes a different mindset than managing everybody who looks like you. And particularly if you're trying to draw a group together and, and form consensus, there's a special skill in that that is necessary at all levels of management, I believe, including at the board level. So an appreciation of what diversity is, and I'm not talking about just gender and ethnicity and race, I'm also talking about background and culture and experience. That is not an easy job to manage uh, with respect to a group of people who represent all of that. And I sometimes think that whole point is missed, in, certainly in um, lower management positions. Uh, I, I just think there ought to be more understanding of that the whole way up and down in the organization. And I think that goes back to the relationship, the connections, um, and, and the trust that you're building as you're connecting with people. Because um, I think that's how you get to know their background, right? So, Yeah, and, and, and building of relationships. And I'm a big on relationships count at all levels and all different types, just the way I feel leadership counts, too. I, I absolutely love all of you. <laughs> and I love this conversation. Jeffrey, has this been incredible? I, it has I, been, I and it's uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly it's been, look, just look at the comments. We could go on for hours, but we want to thank you very much, and we want to make sure that we get to the rest of our program. So we thank you very much for your, 
first of all, your contributions that you've made to your gender, uh, but to this country and to business and leadership at, at all the way around. We thank you very much. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.